Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Colette Shade. Um, Colette, you are a writer for the New Republic. Is that right? Uh, Is yeah. that how I should describe you? Um, I write for a lot of different places. Like I just had a piece come out in The Nation and I'm working on a piece in The New Yorker. So I'm a freelance writer around town. Okay. Um, and you've joined us today to discuss a recent piece you wrote for the New Republic, which is titled, um, Crying at Work Isn't the Answer. Um, do you want to just give listeners maybe an overview of what that piece is about and where it came from? Yeah. So it actually started because I spend a lot of time on Instagram and I get a lot of clothing advertisements aimed at me on Instagram. And one of them was a t-shirt that cost like 35 or $40. And it said, I cry at work. And that's too much for a t-shirt to start with. Agreed. But um, yeah, it, I thought that was really bizarre. And then the t-shirt was to make it even more bizarre. The t-shirt was sold out, which means that there was some kind of demand for this message. That's not a good sign. It's bad. It's bad. And I started to do some research and I actually found that there was seemingly, you know, an uptick in articles showing this or in articles that were discussing this issue of crying at work. And for example, in the New York Times about 10 years ago, there's an article where they said, oh, well, you really shouldn't cry at work. It's not professional But then recently, like in the past two years, there's an article saying, oh, well, actually, it's okay. Most managers understand if you have to cry at work. Boy, uh, it's so nice of them to understand that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, my attitude was basically that fine. I mean, I think it's. I think that people should feel like they can express themselves to a certain extent. But if people are crying a lot at work, that would seem to indicate that there's some kind of a problem. And maybe we should look at why people might be so upset that they're crying at work a lot. Yeah, I I think to some extent this reflects um, sort of a um, change in how people how workplaces are marketing themselves in a way. There's this idea that work uh, companies are like a family or it's a place, not just where you clock in work eight hours and clock out. It's something that is supposed to be defining in a way, fulfilling even. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there's this attitude of, yeah, it's just like a family. You're going to spend at least eight hours, hopefully more than eight hours with these people that you work with. And 
So and you're probably maybe you're in an open office space. And yeah, so you should just feel comfortable being kind of intimate or expressing yourself in that way. And, and it's sort of like a, um, a bizarre twist on the idea of work-life balance where now work just is life. Right. I think that's, that's actually kind of the kernel of it. Whereas before, I think when people were working less, you would just go through, get through work, and then you had enough time to yourself that you would be able to cry off the clock or you would be, you know, you would have enough time to yourself that you'd be able to excuse yourself and go to the bathroom and cry. This is something that um, a few episodes ago when we talked sort of broadly about emotional labor, we had an interview. Well, I'm sorry. I made it sound like that was on the show. We read an interview with Arlie <laughs> Hochschild, who, uh, you know, generally popularized the term. And she mentions in part of that interview that a lot of what workplaces have done is explicitly try to alienate us away from our home life by replacing the comforts that we're used to at home and when we're spending time with family and doing our social reproduction kind of thing. And how that, you know, the the, the question to ask there is why, um, what is the point of doing that? What is the point of alienating us away from our home life by replacing it with stuff that you get at work uh, through whatever terms or, or comforts they offer you. Well, I think that it just would make people a little bit less upset that they're having to spend more and more time at work or that they're getting, you know, uh, the number of jobs in the office is getting cut. And so a person who used to have to do one person's job is now having to do three people's jobs for the same salary. And that doesn't feel so good. And, and I think that, I think, I think that a lot of this sort of making the office comfortable and home-like is designed consciously or unconsciously to prevent people from getting upset about their working conditions and about their pay. Um, I've been reading, I, I started reading, I should say, a um, book by Sarah Jaffe called uh, Work Won't Love You Back. And she <laughs> describes how in the, um, uh, she writes, quote, once upon a time, it was assumed, to put it bluntly, that work sucked and that people would avoid it if at all humanly possible. And what she describes is that over, since like the 70s or so, there's been a cultural shift to where um Work is supposed to bring you fulfillment now. It's supposed to be something that you identify with. And in that shift, you know, if the cultural understanding is that work is going to suck no matter what, then it sort of necessarily leads to a sort of um, class conflict. There's always going to be tension between the workers and the people making them work. But if work is something that even workers can enjoy, then you know, not enjoying your work becomes a personal failing in a way. It becomes something that you have to deal with on your own and you can't solve through collective action. And And that can be real, that can take a real toll on pe people's uh, mental health. You you mean to tell me that when someone is in power or, or authority over other people, they might take a systemic problem that should be solved collectively 
and try to turn it into a matter of individual choice. I don't know where I've ever heard that before. <laughs> well, right. I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. And I think obviously I'm sure your listeners, when they hear the 1970s, that's ding, ding, ding for them in terms of the structural changes that were happening at the time. Because, of course, in the 19th, well, and I shouldn't say of course, because I'm speaking to people who, who may not know this, but in the 1970s, there were these changes structurally in the economy. I tend to like the term neoliberalism because I see it as marking a retreat away from the mid-century social contract between labor and capital. But um, I know some people don't love that term. But regardless, in the 1970s, you had a weakening of unions, a strengthening of capital, and essentially the middle class that had been growing in the mid-20th century, the growth began to stagnate and even reverse. And and concurrent with that was this ideology that, well, all of these issues are things that you can solve individually or at a household level. And so your problems with your job, well, you can solve those by retraining, going back to school, finding work that you love, promoting yourself, and on the strength of your brand, you can succeed versus on the strength of the economy. Yeah, it collective problems become individual ones. And, but if something is your fault in that way, then that really changes your outlook, not just on your job, but also yourself. And that's really harmful. It is really harmful. And I think that's something that probably isn't talked about enough. The way that these, these messages that we get from society shape how we see ourselves, our futures, the world around us, and it they shape what we feel is possible. Um, now, what are the forces that you see as sort of cr- producing all this stress in workplaces? Why are so many people feeling a need to cry at work? Well, I mean, you could pretty much create a long, long, long list, but I'm going to break it down basically into three overarching points. So the first is the amount of time that people work. That's a huge, huge, huge issue. Basically, people are working more than they were like 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I should have brought my statistics with me, but they're in, they're in the article. Um, but basically, people work significant. The average, on average, the average American worker works more than they did now than they did in, I think, 1979 or 1980. And so what that means is that people have less time to do things that are really important for their mental health and for their happiness and for their satisfaction, such as spending time with their families, working on developing their potential in other areas of life, like maybe they play the violin or they want to learn Japanese or anything, want to write a novel. Um, 
So people just don't have time to develop themselves, to form and maintain deep relationships with family and friends. And that's just, they don't have enough time to do basic physiological things they need to do, like exercise or get enough sleep. I mean, it's just people, uh, people work too much. And I, I think not just like the raw number of hours, but I think you can say that more people are also working. Um, there are more women yes. in the workplace now than ever before. And there are also more elderly people in the workplace right. now than ever before. Um, people can't retire. Exactly. Right. Like you used to be able to say, oh, well, at least I'll get a pension. And of course, you know, we want to make sure that, that there were plenty of workers that that didn't apply to. But on the average, that was a norm. And instead of expanding that norm, as we should have done, we pretty much just eliminated it. Right. And so now this is sort of a thing that everybody experiences and it lasts your entire life. And that too has, uh, I mean, it makes things bleak if you stop to think about it too long. Yeah. It's really disrupted how we see phases of life. Like maybe a year ago for one of my classes, I was reading about Eric Erickson's phases of life. Um, and he was a psychologist who basically theorized that developmentally, there are different overarching themes for different parts of our lives. So for you know different parts of childhood into adulthood, into middle age and, and old age. And I think that the fact that we are, that our economy has changed how we live and how we work has probably disrupted that. Like, for example, I know that there are a lot of, a lot of psychotherapists as well as physicians who are using the term emerging adult now, which is this new life phase, which occurs basically after college, but before people settle down and get married. And to me, it seems like that phase exists because people can't get a foothold. So they're really, it's this phase where you're, you're, you previously were supposed to be establishing economic stability, but you can't. That's how it seems to me, at least. That makes a lot of sense to me coming from a uh, you know, we've been talking about cultural shifts this whole time, and I, I grew up very differently in that regard. Like, for example, it was a weird thing to work as a teenager for most people that I knew. And we were very much treated as, you know, your job is you go to school and you get your, you get your grades and then you go off to college and whatever. And um, as a result, <clears throat> pardon me. It was more when you were an adolescent, it was more about your responsibilities within the home and the idea being that, you know, work is something, work for a wage is something that adults do. And obviously here it's, at least stereotypically, teenagers are supposed to be flipping burgers and selling you tickets at the movie theater and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it, I think it's, it's very important uh, to note the ways in which these economic aspects of our lives reify sociological and, and psychological effects on um, how we live. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, the amount of time we spend work working is not good for us. Also, the amount of money that people are paid. I mean, wages are not keeping up with cost of living in most places. Um, I think I put in the article that there's not a single state in the U.S. where a minimum wage job can get you a place to live. And that's bad. And what that means is that even people who, you know, even people who aren't minimum wage, people who are even professional class, they're constantly worried about money, essentially. They're constantly worried about how they're going to pay for their own living expenses, for especially because in a lot of cases, those might include student loans. They're worried about how they're going to support a family. And that just causes a lot of stress for people that it, it's just not necessary. We could fix a lot of that stress for people if we simply paid them more. Yeah, you, you won't get any disagreement for us on that point. Um, there was a, um, an article in NPR recently. It's titled, How Poverty Makes Workers Less yes. Productive. Um, yes. There was this study, I'm going to quote from it here, um, quote, their main experiment was pretty simple. They randomly gave a group of workers a large portion of their compensation earlier in the work period rather than at the very end. On average, they were given 1,400 rupees or about $20. This was a study in India. This was equivalent to about what they had earned in the previous month, and a large fraction of them used the money to pay off outstanding debts. The researchers then monitored the workers' on-the-job performance, comparing them to a group of workers that didn't get paid up front. The re- researchers find that the workers were, who were paid up front were significantly more productive, making 6.2% more plates per hour. And the biggest effect was seen with the poorest workers. So they're finding that not just does it have this obvious mental effect, but that trickles into the workplace. It becomes... yeah. You, you are more productive when you aren't worried about these things in the back of your mind. Right. I mean, um, one of the things that I'm obsessed with talking about is that cortisol affects your memory and ability to concentrate. And so if you're constantly stressed out about money, it's going to make you be really, really forgetful. Like you're going to overlook things. You're going to lose your keys all the time. You might get in more car accidents. You might make, you know, careless mistakes at work and elsewhere. And of course, that's just going to make you more stressed out. Now, cortisol, what is that? That's like a hormone? Stress hormone, yeah. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk about is there's this interesting study done at Emory, and it was published earlier this year in the Journal of Epidemiological and Community Health. And they basically looked at suicide rates, and they looked at suicide rates in the United States over several decades between 1990 and 2015, and they ran models finding that for every dollar the minimum wage was increased in the state, there was a 3.4% to 5.9% decrease in the suicide rates for Adults aged 18 to 64 with a high school education or less. 
and they also found that higher minimum wages made a bigger difference when unemployment rates were higher. And this is just, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, more research is needed to prove causation, but it's likely that raising the minimum wage will lower suicide rates, especially if you look at other um, research that's done by like one research duo I bring up a lot wrote a book called The Inner Level, um, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. They're two British epidemiologists, and they looked at how, how inequality, not just poverty, but they're more looking at inequality in general, how that impacts mental health outcomes. And, and what do they find? Is it, is it bad? Uh, Yeah, I mean, basically across the board. So they have two books. They have one book called um, The Spirit Level, which is about all different types of outcomes. And then they have The Inner Level, which is about mental health in particular. And yeah, they basically find that um, rates of addiction, um, social anxiety, all of these other um, bad outcomes are much higher in unequal societies because it's not only it's not only deprivation that causes bad outcomes but also the stress of living in an unequal society it's sort of the the ability to see that others are you know presumably at least or you perceive them as doing better than you and that um affects you it exactly it does affect you but yeah, I mean, back to the, the topic of, of what makes work difficult, um, you know, the fact that you're not making enough money, you're working too much. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was, actually, I said three things, I lied. It's actually more than that. Um, but one thing, another thing I wanted to mention was the style of organization within workplaces. So there basically a lot of workplaces, your boss is the, you know, uh, king of the workplace or queen of the workplace or what have you. And, and you, if your boss decides, okay, well, you were working on that, actually, you should drop this and work on this, even if it doesn't make any sense to you, you have to do it. And so there's been research done um, by a a guy named um, Robert Karasek, He's an occupational sociologist, and he basically found that if you give workers more autonomy in getting tasks done, they can do the same tasks with less stress. Even if, you know, even if the tasks are stressful, they will find it less stressful if they have more autonomy. Uh, that reminds me of when my new boss, well, I say new, he's been there for a few years, but when he first came in, I remember he brought up a lot. I think it's Daniel Pink who wrote drive. Uh, but it's talking about sort of what makes people think that their job is good. And I never remember the third component because apparently I'm the Rick Perry of punching out. (laughs) That's an incredibly topical reference. Um, but uh, the first two were mastery, the sense that you're getting better at doing your job. And the first one was autonomy. And now he kept bringing this up to us, like, this is a good thing and you should all do it. Um, but somehow it never translated 
into a management philosophy. You know what I mean? Like it, it never right. suddenly became part of his program towards us. Just in the abstract, it's a good idea, but concretely, how dare you? Your boss telling you to be autonomous wasn't <laughs> quite having the intended effect? Yeah, well, it was more like, you. this is the kind of place we should encourage, but I'm not actually going to do anything that makes it more autonomous. In fact, quite the opposite. I, I will trust you less, but I will mention this in, in speeches that I make to you, and uh, you interpret that however you wish. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. I mean, um, yeah, I mean... Obviously, the big issue again here is is structural. Is that in a lot of cases, um, you know, I mean, there's there are structural reasons for management to want to be overbearing and micromanaging, and the only real way to to fix that would either be through more active union representation. So I actually, for example, I talked to, um, I interviewed Richard Wilkinson for an article I wrote for The Nation a little while ago, and he's a big proponent of, of worker representation on corporate boards. And he didn't make this connection specifically, but, you know, I think that that would help people uh, have a little bit more control over what their workplaces are are like on the day-to-day and then the of course the other thing would be um worker cooperatives where everybody makes the decisions together and owns everything together something that um occurred to me while i was reading your piece is that a lot of this stuff that the stress in the workplace to the extent that workplaces are these sort of rat races in a way where you're constantly stressed you're constantly feeling like you've got to perform in order to keep your job. Um, That has a trickle down effect that it shows up in the hiring process as well, which is this like collection of vagaries of how you're supposed to format a resume and what you should say and not say during an interview that are all unwritten, but everybody understands as fact for one reason or another. And it also shows up, you know, in education, which, increasingly is like a precursor to the hiring process. You, you know, you have students who are all stressed out about the college application process or however many um, extracurriculars they might need in order to look good to the right schools that will help them get the good job, you know, defined by right. pay and not necessarily conditions. Um, Noah, I, w- I was wondering if you as the resident teacher here might be able to comment on that. I, I I was wondering if you were going to mention my job before I did uh, for possibly the first time in the history of this program. <clears throat> um, I was going to say that what all of these things that, uh, that Colette, that you are mentioning and that you, you mentioned in the piece, what they end up adding up to or the sort of the common theme is insecurity, right? Yeah. We spend too much time at work. We get paid too little. Uh, everything is about turning the place that is supposed to suck, we culturally construed it as sucking for the longest time um, and and sort of all of the effects that it has on us. And the weird part about that to me is that on the one hand, once you hit, if you're in the 
population of students that's supposed to go to college. Once you hit 17 and 18, junior and senior year of high school, then you do get into that rat race and the college application process and all of this stuff. And you have to take your APs and your extracurriculars and blah, 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 whatever. The weird part about that, though, is that um, as somebody who did a lot of professional development before preparing for this year, because we were supposed to be remote and instead we've been in person this whole time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Speaking of workplace stress. Yeah, um, seriously. Right. I haven't even talked about people worrying about catching a deadly virus. Oh, I did. Oh, um, my God. That's that's why my voice is the way that it is now. Well, but, I um, wish you the, you know, a swift and continued recovery. That's terrible. Thank you very much. Um, but where I'm going with this is that when you look at the pedagogy that teachers are uh, learning now, Uh, And I have to imagine that this is the case, whether you're learning it in a school of education or uh, through active professional development or whatever. It is, in fact, all based on making students feel secure, on making them feel like they have a voice in the classroom, like they have a choice over their learning. That's interesting. And um, over making them feel secure in the sense of, you know, no one grade is going to define how my performance in this class is going to go and all of that. But then when they get to junior and senior year, all of that gets stripped away and it's all right back into, no, you're competing for one of these vanishing, artificially scarce places at the good colleges um, that will get you the good jobs that will be even more scarce and all that. And that, that to me has always been jarring because I do teach a variety of grade levels. And so you can see how the kids, as they get closer to that journey, you know, for from my point of view, I'm trying to make them feel as secure as possible in my classes. Sure. And the effect on me is that they stop paying attention to what they're doing for me and they start paying attention to the college process and all that because that's what they know they need to deploy uh, um, everything into. But then the irony is, of course, they're constantly talking about how stressed out this is. And right. I'm going, then I'm only making you more stressed, aren't I? Because you're not doing any of the work you need to do for my class because you're busy doing all this other stuff. I understand that. But like, come on, man, I need you to balance things out. And I get it for them because they're constantly thinking about this stuff. They literally don't have any time, most of them, to do the other things that they need to do. Yeah, I mean, that's bad. That's not a good system. Um Poor. And again, I mean, I think I think what this really all comes down to is, you know, these bigger and bigger questions of, okay, well, how do we want to organize our society? And we really don't need to have a society where people are experiencing this type of thing. And so I think we have to to take a kind of pragmatic perspective here and just say, uh, okay, well, uh, what what kind of outcome do we want? Uh, not this. Okay, let's try something else. Yeah. Um, so, something that you mentioned in your piece that we haven't gotten to yet here is uh, speaking of security is sort of the insecurity a lot of people have with just keeping their job. There is always the threat of firing looming over their heads and what that firing could entail, which in the U.S. could mean losing your health insurance during a pandemic or otherwise. Um, and, and that looms large in the mental space for many workers. Yeah, and as it should, because 
I mean, it really is a true threat. And on the one hand, obsessing over it, obsessing over anything isn't going to change the outcome. So I'm definitely not trying to encourage people to, to continue to, to fixate on, on these upsetting thoughts they might be having. However, that's still to say that these thoughts are based in, in a serious reality. And at that point, I think we need to say, okay, well, this reality is not good. People, if they lose their job, are going to, in, unless they have family wealth or your, their spouse is, is able to support them, they're going to end up losing their health insurance. They might end up homeless. They might not, you know, they won't be able to pay for, for food. And if we just, so, I mean, there are a couple issues here. The first is a labor rights issue, which is that we need to get rid of at-will employment no two ways about it. Like you just simply shouldn't be able to easily lose your job. Um, the US is really, really behind a lot of other, pretty much all other developed countries in terms of labor rights. But as you know, but especially if you're talking about at will employment, for example, um, you know, I think I was reading somewhere that, you know, most other developed countries don't, don't have this, you have to go through a if, if your boss wants to fire you, if your company wants to fire you, they have to go through a process uh, and, and you get a voice and, you know, and some people still lose their jobs, but it's, it's much less arbitrary and you have much more protections as a, as a worker. But then, of course, the other thing is that, well, we, we shouldn't be giving out basic, basic security based on employment, because there are a number of reasons why someone um, might not want to work or might not be able to work. Um, everything from the changing structure of the economy and job market to, you know, an un a surprise illness or life event. Um, and people should just be able to know that no matter what, there's a floor. You, you use the uh, the word arbitrary there, and I think that really gets at something that causes me a lot of stress in all this is just not really knowing what's required, um, especially in like a hiring process. There, you know that it's ultimately up to the whim of your boss or the person hiring you as to whether you'll get or keep this job, and but the like line of what you have to do to stay in their good favor is never made clear. It is always hidden from you. It's always something that you kind of have to put touch and feel to figure out where you're meeting their standards and where you aren't because many bosses not very clear about what they want to see. They um, aren't good in that way about uh, expressing these things. And that's something that, meeting those invisible standards is something that really um, more than anything causes me stress in the workplace and in all of this. Same. Yeah, and yeah, by design. Me too. I mean, I think, yeah, it causes a lot of people stress and I think, yeah, it arguably is by design, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that I haven't really thought, about as much about how to rectify that in particular. I mean, 
I do think that if there was simply more security in your employment status, that it would be just less important. So you wouldn't have to worry as much about, am I meeting these arbitrary standards? Um, you know, potentially, I mean, one thing a union that one thing that I think union representation could do or alternate, you know, um, not, I shouldn't say alternately, but that like a, uh, a worker co-op could do is mandate more clear illustration of workplace expectations. But yeah, that's not some, I mean, that's, that's what comes to mind, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Um, Ryan, can I take this for a second? Yes. Yes. By all means. The, the way I'd go with this is that um, I thought about this when Ryan was talking about um, actually, I don't remember which one of you uh, said this, but you're talking about ending at will employment. And one of the effects of the fact that most of us are subject to that is that if you know somebody or uh, that has a union job that can only be fired for cause, of course, I'm mostly thinking about teachers unions here. I am not in one, um, but I'll, I can talk a little bit more about that in the next segment. Anyway, point being, uh, when you know people who have that kind of protection and you don't, it, it engenders a, a, a jealousy and a hatred and an understandable one because you know that this person is getting an advantage that you aren't. And that causes further stress on you. And that's going to cause other negative emotions to take hold. And that's why you see uh, so much hatred for this idea of tenure or for other kind of benefits like that. When ultimately what most of those mean is you have to go through a process. Your boss has to do actual work to fire you. And if they don't have to do that, and this is where I, I come back together with what Ryan's saying, if they don't have to do that, then those expectations don't have to be clear. Then they can change night and day or uh, whenever they want because they don't, they're not responsible to you at all. If you right. have labor rights, if you have the ability to essentially, I guess, mouth off to your boss about why is this not clear? Why are you not having an actual equal conversation with me? Then suddenly I think you find the expectations do become clearer because they don't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's all true. And again, I think anytime that there's something, I think that anytime that there's something desirable or something that you are jealous of someone for having, um, possibly on both a personal and societal level, um, although that's a whole other can of worms, I think that, you know, here I'm going to keep it to, to society. I mean, I think that you can figure out, okay, well, it's, it's not a zero sum game here. It doesn't have to be. So how can we figure out how I can get this thing that I'm resenting these other people for having? Ideally. Yes. It, you talked about something that uh, unions could do uh, in terms of ending the arbitrariness. And one thing that a lot of unions do do is, you know, push for clear standards about when workers can be fired. Um, there, there's sort of a hesitancy to set up this uh, system where you can effectively be fired by an algorithm, quote unquote. But the alternative is get being fired at the whim of your boss. And that will inevitably be uh, subject to your boss's various biases, which whether that's just 
who they hang out with in the workplace or, you know, racial or sexual um, biases, you know, and that will inevitably, um, that system inevitably works out less well for uh, racial and ethnic minorities and other groups. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, relating back to the sort of arbitrariness of like, hiring and firing and and norms and, um, and also, you know, a lot of this stuff does go back to your identity and who you know, which is also related to your identity. And um, I just think that like, better workplace standards, um, more clearly illustrated workplace standards and better workplace protections are going to redound to the benefit of people who are in identity categories, be they racial or gender, sexuality, religious identity categories um, that are at a disadvantage in our current labor market and, you know, in, in current, most current employment situations. Yeah. Um, we've spent 40 minutes or so now laying out all of the problems, a lot of problems. Didn't even get to all of the problems. Um, we're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about the, you know, what we do to fix all of this. You know, what would that look like? Um, we'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Colette. Hi. We've been talking for the first... uh, two-thirds of this show about the various ways in which our jobs are making us more stressed and less happy. And we want to spend the last segment of the show talking about what we can do to change that, how we can make it so that our jobs aren't having these horrible mental effects on us. Um, Colette, your piece goes into this somewhat. You've hinted at it throughout much of the show already. What do you see as solutions to these problems? Right. So I think that there are a couple different approaches here. I think that the number one top approach would be to make sure that we have a welfare state that provides for people no matter what, even if they can't get a job, even if they don't have a job for whatever the reason might be, whether that's a pandemic or a personal issue or some kind of disability. Um, everybody should know that no matter what, they should immediately get be able to be taken care of and know that they can maintain a basic standard of living with housing, health care, healthy food, and so on. You use this uh, term in the article of uh, decoupling work from the means of subsistence. And I think that really... Um, doing so would really lower the stakes of all these workplace problems and make them much less significant in people's lives in a, in a way that would be really helpful. Right, exactly. And I mean, I think even in this 
world where the stakes are lowered, there are still going to be people who are really ambitious about their careers and they are going to have these, you know, these workplace stresses, but they will always know that no matter what happens, they won't die. They won't end up homeless. They will be able to see a doctor. And I just think that would make a world of a difference. Right. The The idea is, you know, if, if you're somebody who defines themselves by their their grit or their hustle or their stick-to-itiveness, if you're one of these people that, you know, like posts about if I found a million dollars on the ground, I'd give it away. I don't need any of that kind of thing. Um, that those should be choices. Exactly. That those should be values that you have, but they should not be a necessity to just, you know, remain alive and fed and sheltered. That That's something I'd like to... I, I interact with a lot of very conservative students who ask about this kind of thing. And that's my usual pitch for socialism. It's, you know, we live in a world where these things are necessities. They're not choices. They're not values. That's what I would like to see. Exactly. It's all about giving everyone more choice. I mean, I just read for, for one of my policy classes, I just read this um, Isaiah Berlin's Two Faces of Liberty, which is where he talks about how we define freedom, you know, and what he says is basically a lot of times we see we are interested in the freedom from people telling us what to do and telling us what we can and cannot do. But in, in the U.S. anyway, we're a little less interested in um, the effects of, you know, being free from like hunger, because can you really be free if you have to take a crappy job because you need to eat and you have like 10 bucks in your bank account? I would also add that we don't really have the other kind of freedom either. Well, right. Because I would the workplace also is that. not, you know, you're not well, free sure. from other people telling you what to do in right. the workplace. These are right. tiny dictatorships. Right. I mean, and that goes to the theory of Elizabeth Anderson, who is a political philosopher who talks about the way that workplaces are authoritarian. They're literally private governments where people can be surveilled. Um, Every aspect of their appearance and behavior can be policed. They can be told they can't use the bathroom. I mean, it's just totally ridiculous. And if the government did that to us, we would at least hopefully uh, you know, revolt against it. But but we don't necessarily, in this country at least, have that same reaction when it's a company, when it's your employer, for a number of reasons that are hard to really untangle that knot. Well, I think I think it's because you have this idea, and I say this as a person who who at one point did have this idea that, well, if you have a bad job, you can just leave. Like I remember I had a friend um, who's a little older than me and I was in college and undergrad and, and she was in the workplace and she was being sexually harassed at her job. And I was like, well, first of all, that's illegal. So you should file a lawsuit. And second of all, um, like you should just leave. And she was like, yeah, but uh, I need to pay rent. <laughs> yeah. You talked a bit about uh, surveillance and and these sort of totalitarian measures that often come up in the workplace, and and I'm struck by um, 
there's a unionization effort underway at a warehouse in Alabama, one of Amazon's warehouses. And there have been stories about the lengths Amazon is going to to um, oppose that unionization. They have uh, temp workers who will not be part of the bargaining unit. And they those temp workers have been told that they have to wear vote no buttons at work or you know risk losing their job uh, because you can't do that to regular workers because that would be illegal under uh, NLRA rules, but you can when they're not part of the bargaining unit. And there are all these signs in the bathrooms about joining a union will mean you have to pay dues. Um, They've even gone so far as to have the traffic lights changed at an intersection where uh, workers had been passing out information on the union. It's just really absurd. That's wild. I hadn't heard about the traffic lights, but had heard about all the other things. And as every joke you've seen about this is, they put signs up in the bathrooms that they don't let people go to. (laughs) So have they started letting them take breaks? Because we've talked about that policy on here. And it's draconian. Um, Yeah, I, I do think that aside from paying people more, ending at will employment. Um, I think those are your two biggest things. Or, or really what they add up to is decoupling employment from the fulfillment of your needs and even some of your wants. Um, but then within the workplace, you really do have to just bring these corporations and all of these you know, uh, uh, anti-unionization efforts and all of this workplace surveillance and all of this stuff. You just have to bring it to heel. Uh, yeah. Which I know is easier said than done, right? But it it's something that you can't regulate out of existence because as we're seeing with Amazon, they'll just figure out ways around that. You have to forbid it and then enforce that forbidden. Yeah. And there's just nothing else you can do. Well, again, I think I, I actually mentioned this on, on the break, but for the listeners, I mean, I think that these, you both brought up this idea of a worker's bill of rights. And I think that that is an interesting idea. And I, and that sounds great. It's just that it has to be coupled with enforcement and it has to be enforced. It has to be legal and then enforced at the federal level. It can't just be random municipalities or random states doing it. And it certainly can't just be like, okay, here's a law. Like a law just doesn't mean anything if there's no enforcement of it. Mm -hmm. Which is sadly the case for a great many of labor laws. Exactly. Um, That's exactly right. You know, um, a law that isn't at the federal level, you're not likely to see that get passed in Alabama, where these workers are struggling right now, um, for example. Right. And and as you guys probably know and have talked about, the difficulties with labor rights in, in the South have a long and very specific history related to race and to slavery. A- absolutely. The, you know, Jim Crow is a society where black workers are underpaid so that also white workers will not make as much because there is always the threat of being undercut by this uh, underclass of people who won't won't get paid as much. Um, And these racial divisions have been driven in order to break up unionization efforts in the past and still to this day. Um, It's you can't untangle those things. Yeah. I mean, um, I really wish everyone in Alabama the best. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I really hope it works out. I, I think we can take 
some heart in the fact that Amazon is going to these lengths in a weird way because it suggests that they recognize this as a threat. It suggests that there is real power in unionization because otherwise they wouldn't bother doing anything to stop it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That's no, that that's exactly right. That's something we've said before on here that if, uh, if your boss especially is talking about something and, and actually trying to oppose it, then that's probably a pretty effective tactic and you should do more of it. And it points to one of the ways we build the power to, as you said, Noah, um, forbid them from doing such things. It has to be through collective action like this. It, it can't be workers operating on their own and hoping for the best as it often has been for the past few decades. Right. I mean, I think that if you're, you know, a lot of like career, a lot of career advice type stuff is focused at the individual level or the level of your team. So communicating with your team or your manager, and that's not to say that that's completely useless, but, um, you know, it can have some effect, but it's, in a lot of cases, the real problem here is at a much broader structural level. And again, it's important to remember that when we talk about bosses, it's not about people. It's not about people being good or bad. It's about, because most people I think are, you know, they're just trying to go throughout, go throughout their lives and get through their day. Um, but it's about these, these broader systems that require growth and require um, people to work under worse and worse conditions, basically. Yeah. I, you know, one thing we've tried to do on on this show throughout its history is like tie these sort of individual problems, these things that make you want to cry at work to like the broader systemic reasons of why they're happening. You know, it's never, there there are a lot of people who uh, I think at least are, feel that they are suffering alone in the fact that they don't like their work, that they aren't satisfied at work. But there are a lot of people who feel that way. They they aren't alone. It's just a matter of sort of recognizing that and figuring out what you can do about it, which often is, you know, again, it, it can't be done alone. Yeah, I think that's right. Ultimately, the the reason we end up right and Colette, I think you mentioned this in your piece. You talk about uh, an episode of Mad Men where uh, Peggy goes to cry in the bathroom and finds another co-worker already there. Yeah. Um, ultimately, the reason we end up in that state in, in so many cases um, is because we do not feel uh, any community at work. And I can tell you, again, as a non-union educator – um, this year, we've seen a very inorganic effort from our management mm-hmm. to create what they called a community of care, uh, which meant getting randomly texted by people in administration about how you're doing during the pandemic. But what we've yeah. also seen, and because this is the last segment, I have to be positive here. Um, but what we've also seen, and I take a lot of heart from this, is organic community. We've seen teachers that you know never spoke before never interacted before, reaching out to each other and asking, uh, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? We've seen teachers come together 
um, to help each other out, to cover for each other, to make sure that they're safe because we do have a ton of high risk people in the building. And uh, we've seen our, our faculty group that is, uh, you know, that that's basically how we advocate for ourselves, um, get a lot more aggressive than it ever has in dealing with management, just out of a sense of, you know, uh, they're going to try to take away as much as they can from us in this year. But we're going to fight this. Uh, we're going to fight this as hard as we can, which is not the usual attitude that I've seen from them. So I do take a lot of heart in the fact that if if you can just make that one first step, that there there are probably people who hate your job as uh, their job as much as you do, and that you can be in solidarity with them and you can collectivize with them uh, to do things. I I think you will find that. There's a lot more success. There's a lot more possibility there than I think any of us realize before we see it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that one thing to to consider is that I always like to consider is that things are rarely ever all good or all bad. And it's really easy to get into this headspace of thinking that, oh, well, you're assessing the situation and um it's not good. And that, and then from there going to the conclusion of, well, that means that nothing can change. Everything is bad and we're all screwed. And I think that part of figuring out how to live in this world, whether you're talking on the individual level or on a more broader social structural level is trying to figure out, okay, well, is kind of taking a broader view, looking at all of the evidence saying, okay, well, this is pretty bad, but also, hey, look, you've got these people who are teaming up um, in this unexpected way. And then trying to, you know, take a, a less dire outlook. Things are often a mixture of good and bad and good things can even, some good things can happen even in, even when there are, you know, bad circumstances, if that makes sense. I, I would say it does. Um, we're running up against the clock now, but I want to thank you for joining us today, Colette. Um, this has been a really good conversation, I think. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.